Well, it really all depends upon the person. If that works, then we should keep doing it. I'm Bobby. I'm a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator. I also lead a caregiver support group in my local community. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here, we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. Then don't forget the wine, Mike. Speaking of best medicines, right? <laughs> <laughs> you got that right. <sighs> you know, when when your mother passed away and people asked what's going to happen to your dad, the, we knew immediately that he was going to be coming to us. We've uh, We also knew that for a very long time that he was not going to be able to live on his own. He just had what I was told was nervous problems. And, you know, he didn't drive. He took a lot of medication. So we brought him into our home knowing that we wanted to take care of him. He wasn't with us too long before I got his medical records from the VA hospital in Pittsburgh and discovered for the first time that he was a schizophrenic who had been diagnosed in 1947 and spent the next 13 years in a mental hospital. So at that point, I knew that I'd taken on more than I realized. <laughs> and then, you know, over the years, he developed Parkinson's disease and then uh, and dementia, which I really didn't know was Lewy body dementia until I saw it in his medical records after he had passed. So what we were dealing with was way bigger than we thought. And also three things that caused hallucinations and hearing voices. And now some people ask me, how did I know which was which disease was causing it? And to me, it really didn't matter what was what mattered, what was happening in the moment. Um, and now that some of the people that I'm working with and educating on how to deal with dementia have some questions about hallucinations and hearing voices in people with dementia. And that brings us to today's guest. She's a board-certified Beverly Hills psychiatrist and has served on the clinical faculty of UCLA's Neuro Neuropsychiatric Institute for years. She has appeared on numerous network and cable TV shows and has three Emmys to her credit. Please welcome Dr. Carol Lieberman. Hi there. <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, as we talked a little bit previously, you're certainly um, familiar with uh, schizophrenia. And, you know, when Mike's dad was diagnosed back in 1947, and he spent all that time in the mental hospital, the treatments for schizophrenia were very different, and in often cases, very brutal. Um, and, you know, he had electric shock treatments, he had ice baths, he had experimental treatments. Um, and, it had a huge effect on his memory and also on his ability to deal with people. And then when we added the dementia on top of it, it really created a stew that what, for lack of a better word, was a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I have to ask somebody with your expertise, what advice would you give to somebody who found themselves in the position that we did at that time? 
<laughs> to hire a caregiver. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> um, yes, that is certainly a stew. Um, now, I just wanted that when he, he said he was uh, hospitalized for schizophrenia for how many years? 13? 13 years. And then what, did he go somewhere else before he came to you or he went there from oh, yeah. there to you? Yes. Um, after he was released from the hospital, um, he met and married my mother-in-law and oh. raised my husband, um, his stepson, and their natural son. Um, so he was, he was out of the hospital for many, many years before he came to us. Yes. And, you know, um, after the time in the hospital with the medicines advancing and so on and so forth, where they didn't do, have to do the radical things, he was able to live a, uh, a life, um, so to speak, uh, and not be institutionalized. But he was, he was readmitted several times for short periods of yes. time to get him um, back on track with his medications and so forth. You know, that's, um, that's very interesting because uh, typically schizophrenics don't marry and have children um, and live that kind of a relatively normal life. I mean, I take it he was on less medications and as you said, he had to go back to the hospital a few times to readjust that. But um, I just wonder, especially because it was so long ago, I wonder if that was the right diagnosis in the first place, schizophrenia, or whether he may have had some other illness like um, manic depressive illness now called bipolar. Did, any, did you ever question any of that? No, because when he was off his medications um, and he was clearly hearing voices and he was um, a completely different person. Um, no, we didn't question it. Um, and again, these diagnoses were in the, in the 1940s. Right. So to go back and question, uh, that was before I was born. Well, <laughs> and he was under psychiatric care all through, throughout his entire life. And um, how, how old was he when he first uh, was diagnosed? He was 21. in his 20s. Uh-huh. 21. Well, I mean, it certainly could have been the, the, the um, you know, maybe some of the treatments that he got during the time that he was in the hospital uh, actually worked um, well enough to have him then be able to get married and, and uh, have children and so on. Because schizophrenia, one of the uh, symptoms or hallmarks of schizophrenia is that people are loners. Um, they don't have trouble uh, making connections with other people. Oh, he was definitely, he definitely had that. And I think the reason that he married was my mother-in-law and his mother really pushed him. He said he never expected to, to marry and have children. I think, you know, his mother had reached the point where she said, if somebody else is going to take care of you, I'm going to let that happen. Um, mm. And he was very much a loner, even though he married um, he did very little interaction with family members and definitely wasn't out in the community. Uh-huh. Okay. Did, what kind of work did he do? Did he work? Um, well, he uh, was a custodian at the post office. 
Uh-huh. And he helped unload the early trucks and, and things of that sort. So, um, and because he was a, this all actually was diagnosed by the VA. He um, came to this country and found out about the GI Bill and he was big on education. He had advanced degrees in mathematics and physics and mm. language. Mm. And he, um, he thought this is the best way for me to go to school. And so he went into the uh, army. And then, as he said, he collapsed in the army and woke up uh, 11 days later, 11 days later in, in the hospital. Hmm. So he was um, a 100% disabled veteran, which was in one sense a blessing because all the care he needed over the years and even with us, the VA took care of it. Right. Um, and the medicines and everything else. So uh, once he got out of the hospital and was uh, living the normal life, so to speak, uh, because he was a disabled veteran, he was able to get the job at the post office with the veteran's preference. Uh, oh, huh. But then he, he wasn't able to continue to work because he was feeling paranoid about the people that he was working with. And he, he took a uh, full disability and, and didn't work after that. Um, mm-hmm. He had gotten a degree in physics and math, so a college degree before he went to the... Before he came to the United States, yes. Huh, okay. So, and he used to do calculus in his head. Uh, my, my uncle, his younger brother said, uh, he used to be so frustrating because he would do calculus in his head and my uncle had a hard time with algebra <laughs> huh at the time he was in the hospital they re- they wanted to do a lobotomy but my his mother wouldn't allow it well that was good yeah, yeah. Um, so um these hallucinations that he had um were they uh were they what were the typical kinds of hallucinations? Now, he didn't have visual hallucinations. He had, um, he heard voices. It was, it was audio with him. And um, he could be, he was very gentle and very sweet and very unassuming until he was off his medications. And then he could be very combative. Um, mm-hmm. So visual hallucinations are typical of organic um, problems, you know, medical, like you were asking about, um, you know, the question of, of whether, what came from what, and of course that's really hard to know. But one thing I can tell you is that um, visual hallucinations are from some kind of an illness or drugs or something like that. Whereas auditory hallucinations, um, you don't have to have any kind of organic problem, uh, you know, like the whatever was causing the dementia, well, the Lewy body and, and um, uh, the, um, what did, the dementia and Parkinson's. Parkinson's. And, right. And so, right. So it, th- those, so his hallucinations weren't uh, related to those because they weren't visual. It's unlikely that that, that had played that much of a role in it but were they um i mean was he did he have hear voices telling saying saying commenting on him like saying he's doing this and he's doing that um i asked i asked him 
a couple of times, you know, because I could, I could watch him and, and I could see when he was interacting with the voices. And I would say to Mike, the others are here today. Oh. And, uh, you know, he would, he would speak back to them. Uh, and I, I asked him a couple of times what they said to him and he, he would never, he would never reveal that. Mm. And I spoke to his, his psychiatrist once and what he said to me was, it's never anything good. Um, there was a number of times when I would go up into his room and I would find him spinning in place. Um, and the doctor said, you know, he could have hear a voice saying he had to do that or the world would blow up. Yes. Um, we had no idea. Um, but he said they made him suspicious and they made him nervous. And it was very clear that they made him suspicious because at one point he accused me of poisoning him yeah. and uh, trying to kill him. And he said at one point um, that the government knows everything about you even before you're born and that they wanted him to die. And you know, I had to do what the government said, all of that kind of stuff. Now, now Dr. Lieberman, it, it's fair to point out that my dad, um, when he first came with us, he was managing his medicine himself. And what we didn't realize was he wasn't taking it. Mm. So he was mismanaging his medicines and that put him into a psychotic break. Mm -hmm. And so then after the hospitalization and coming back, he wanted to take control of his medicine again. And Bobby absolutely would not allow it, but he would cheat the medicine and throw it out. Uh -huh. Sit it down the toilet. And so that will cause another psychotic break. Now, I remember, oh, I was probably uh, a junior or senior in high school, so probably the early 70s, where he decided he didn't need to take medicine anymore. And he would be on a street corner and he would be pretty much in a catatonic state. He gets like that here too. Um, and, and it was. Uh, very, very uh, different where he would go to the street corner, not in the street, but on the corner and squat and he would be there for hours, never moving. And um, the police brought him to the house. I think twice that happened. Um, and both times he ended up in the, in the, um, in the uh, medical facility, in the psychiatric ward. Mm-hmm. Well, that must not have been very easy for you to be growing up with that. Um. <laughs> you want to tell her that when, when I got his medical records, um, it was stacks and stacks, you can imagine, from 1947 to 2002. Uh, and I was reading them, and that's where I discovered that he was schizophrenic. And I looked over at my husband and I said, why didn't you tell me? And I looked at her and I said, I, I had no idea. I didn't know. I honest to God didn't know. Now, yeah. his mother had told everybody that he had a war injury, that there was a plate in his head. And that's what caused his so-called nervousness in these episodes where he had to be hospitalized again. Um, and even though he had been my father-in-law for 15 years, I barely knew the man because as we said, he was so introverted and we would go to visit them and he'd say, hi, how are you? How's everybody? And 
then oh. he would go off oh. on his own and that, that was it. So I thought I had this very gentle henpecked man who was going to flourish <laughs> in my care. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, Mike, so your mother, did your mother know his diagnosis? Yes. You know, I, I'm not completely sure um, that she knew about the details of it. I know she knew he was in a mental hospital, uh, but as far as the specifics, I think it, on her part, um, she was famous for risk avoidance. Mm -hmm. If I don't know, then it doesn't happen, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so when he would go to his appointments at the VA, she would sit in the car. She wouldn't go in with him. Oh, huh. So uh, again, it was very much the, the, for lack of a better word in my vocabulary or better term to put to it, risk avoidance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I honestly think that his, his immediate family, his mother and his brother and his sister-in-law were more than happy to let my mother-in-law take him on. Mm-hmm. So was it true the story that his mother said about the plate in his head? Was that no. actually that no. was she made that up? She made because, that up. Because she probably knew the diagnosis, right? Yes, I believe so. And at that point, you know, it was very shameful. You don't tell people you have mental illness in your house. Yes. Yes. Well, that's all very interesting. You know, it's also interesting to wonder um about whether the, these various treatments back in the day um, it did have something to do with certainly the dementia, you know, um, later on, and perhaps even related to the Lewy body. It's hard to, to really know for sure, but certainly um, those were rather uh, primitive treatments that they had back then. Yes, and being on those, those medications for so long, right. you, you know, Dr. Lieberman, he was aware enough that something he had lost a lot, but he couldn't figure out, you know, why he was the way he is. And one of his most famous Heard uh, words were or comments was, it don't make sense. It don't make sense. Mm. He could no longer make sense of the, wor of the world. Hmm. Well, uh, it's a good thing he isn't alive today. <laughs> uh, touche on that. <laughs> now, we, you know, we've really talked a lot. Uh, oh, go ahead, Dr. Lee. I don't want to cut you off because... No, that's okay. Um, no, I was just thinking that we all, you know, we're all kind of walking around in that way today. Um, yeah, don't yeah. make sense. Yes. Now, it's interesting. You asked me or you made the comment that it must have been tough growing up in that situation. Um, I never really knew it because in, in 1964, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and I became consumed with playing the drums like Ringo Starr. Yeah. And so when I wasn't in school, I was playing drums, whether it be on a coffee camp or whether it be on a drum set. And then of course, when I turned 16, I started working. So I rarely was around the house. I was all, or I should say, I very rarely was communicative because I was so consumed with music mm -hmm. um, um, growing up. So I really didn't notice other than my dad was very, very quiet and he had this nervous condition and 
had this plate in his head as my mother told everybody. And your uh, mother was very, very loud. And even when he wanted to say something, he often got oh, in yeah. the way. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. She was, um, she was definitely the, the triple alpha. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I really didn't notice any difficulty in growing up because of my being so consumed uh, the way I was. And then but I went off to college. But then, but before then, before 16, um, did you feel like, uh, you know, did he give you hugs? Um, did he talk to you at all? Um, the, the affection, the affection apart, no, that was not part of his nature uh, at all. Now, when I was younger, we did go to a couple baseball games and we went to the circus. Um, but I was mm, probably eight, nine, maybe 10, 10 years old at the max. But then as he got further and further along with different medications, that all, um, mm. that all ceased. And my brother, who's six years younger, never had any of that. Mm. I had a very little, but he had zero. So um, the communications every now and again, we would, uh, we would sit and we would talk and it would be for a period of time, might be five minutes, it might be 25 minutes, it might be an hour. But when he was done, he was done. Yeah. And that was, <laughs> uh, and it could be mid-sentence and he was done. And even when he was here with us, Sometimes he would have these moments of clarity and we would go on a little road trip with him down memory lane. And when he was done, bam, it was over. But um, so, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't social at all. No, he usually did not make eye contact. Mm. So, um, but you were able to, you know, to have him live in your house until until he finally died or did he yes. have to go into some well, no that... we were we were both with him when he passed away when he took his last breath here in his room now when after when he had this psychotic break when he he ended up in the psych ward for eight weeks at one point they told us he was so far gone we would never get him back and that he would have to spend the rest of his life in an institution but then they got him medicated again and they sent him home and he stayed until his death. Well, you should feel really good about that. That was quite, um, quite a challenge, as you said, and, uh, and, and quite, um, you know, you should feel really happy and proud that, that you gave him such, such happiness and such comfort, such, such protection um, for that long. Um, at one point, um, I have to say, uh, one Easter, we made a special meal for him, and it was just the three of us, and uh, he looked around the room, and he looked at the food, and he said, you know, I was born in a farmhouse in Italy, and now I'm in this house here. I am such a lucky man. Oh. I never thought I would die in a place like this. Everything is beautiful. Thank you. Oh, wow. And everybody at that table was in tears because he had that moment of clarity there. Where, and there were 
Dr. Lieberman, you can imagine there were days when I didn't know how I was going to make it through the day. But that memory and, you know, having brought that to him made it worthwhile in, in, in a very poignant way. Yes, yes. Sometimes I was, you know, sometimes I was, you know, trying to kill him. Sometimes I was controlling him. Sometimes, you know, he didn't like me at all and I didn't like him either. Uh, but other times, you know, he would say I was his best friend or, you know, he wouldn't know what to do without me, but it'd be a goner without you. And those times were a lot fewer than the times where it, it wasn't that great. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a beautiful story. So uh, before we end our time here on this episode, I'd like to ask you a question. So caregivers a lot of time deal with a lot of guilt. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you have any advice for a caregiver dealing with the loneliness and guilt of being a caregiver. Yes, there is the feeling that whatever you're doing, even though it's, it's a lot, you always feel, especially after the person dies, um, it wasn't enough. Or you look back on everything and think, oh, I should have done more here. I should have done more there. I should have, you know, all these I should have. And um, it's very, it's very difficult um, to not be plagued by that. But uh, the best antidote is thinking about times that you've just been talking about, you know, the good times, whether it's where from uh, the times you were able to go to the circus to the times that he said these things at the dinner table. Um, You know, you have to, and, and what helps is if you write down these things, these positive memories, so that whenever your mind goes to all the I should have, or if I would have done that, maybe then this would have happened, you know, um, you just need to keep reading over the positive things that happened and, and uh, realize that you did do a, a huge amount. Um, one of the things that came to me well after this was over, and I, you know, I questioned, did I do enough? Did I do it right? Why didn't I see this happen over and over again during the time? But after it had passed and, and I started writing the book, Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver, it came to me that he had many more good days with us than he would have had otherwise. And that was the mission. And, and um, at one point, he, um, he woke up and he said, I had a dream last night. And God told me my job here is done. Oh. And a friend of mine said, uh, you realize, Bobby, that you were his job, that mm-hmm. he was teaching you to do what you do now. <laughs> mm. Oh, wow. Yes. And, you know, people have, um, just everyday people, you don't have to have any particular illness, but people have, when they have those kinds of dreams, um, it really is a um, foreshadowing of the fact oh, it was. that they, their end is near. He yes. um, went into in-home hospice right within a couple of days. Um, mm-hmm. um, and... I do have one question, you know, we really got into our story rather than the general story of people with dementia. Um, but the, I have a caregiver support group and some of them are dealing with people who are having hallucinations. And one asked me, what should I do if, if my spouse sees something scary um, like Godzilla? And I told her, tell Godzilla to get the hell out of your house. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, address the fact that, you know, to him it's real and just order them, order him out. And I really would like to have your input on that. Uh, if that's not correct, what to do the next time? <laughs> well, it really all depends upon the person. If that works, then the, you should keep doing it. Um, if that just makes, if that doesn't work, if the uh, spouse doesn't feel, um, uh, doesn't get calmed down by that, doesn't feel, you know, says something like he's not listening to you or that's not going to work or, you know, if it, so if it doesn't work, then you have to just confront the fact that, um, uh, you know, I know that tell me more about you could do it a number of different ways you could ask the person tell me more about Godzilla where is he what's he doing what's he saying um why is he so frightening um if the person is already under the bed because of Godzilla then um you you need to sort of do more soothing kinds of things or even tell tell him that he's gone or it really I mean you know obviously that's a sign that um, the person needs a medication adjustment or an increase right. in the medication. Um, but for the moment, you know, you can try see which of these kinds of things work. Thank I mean, you. Sometimes, sometimes, um, sometimes it causes more agitation to say that, uh, like, there's no Godzilla here. I don't know what you're talking right. about. That can make the person more agitated. I right. think that's more the case than not. <laughs> Because well, you know, you're in an argumentative state now. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, you gave me some some definite tips to work with there, other than ordering him out. Because some people see children. Um, my sister's mother-in-law would say, "Oh, the dirty girls are here today." Whatever that meant to her, you know, they were always shooing the girls out. Um, so I I know that our listeners will appreciate that input well, as well. Well, you know, it's really fascinating to ask the person. Um, what the, what the meaning of, of what they see and hear uh, is because th there's always a connection. You know, a lot of times people uh, say, a lot of psychiatrists will say um, that they're, this is just nonsense. This is, uh, you know, there are delusions and hallucinations and all that are just nonsense. Uh, so, you know, there's no point in listening to them or finding out about them or anything, but it's not nonsense. It actually, I mean, when I was, I, I trained in psychiatry at uh, NYU Bellevue and um, I used to, uh, well, first of all, I used to do and still do actually psychotherapy with people who are schizophrenic. Um, and I used to do groups when I was a, a resident with schizophrenics. And um, you can, you, if you listen carefully to their description of what they hear or what they see, um, you can really find out more about who they are and what's bothering them and why they're seeing or hearing these things. Um, it's, it's not random. There are definitely psychodynamic, psychological, psychoanalytic ways of, of understanding these things and then helping the people. But, you know, nowadays, uh, unfortunately, so many psychiatrists are just uh, pill pushers, you know, mm -hmm. and right. um, they don't take the time to uh, do therapy with people with manic depressive illness or even sometimes people with um, bipolar. But they really do can respond. It's not I mean, yes, of course, uh, those illnesses do require some medication, but 
you can't just give the person a prescription and send them off with a prescription. You have to um, also try to understand them and try to understand what's what's bothering them and why they're seeing these things or hearing, you know, who are they hearing? Now, there's kind of a fine line because you don't want to emphasize or show so so much interest that the person then is unconsciously um, provoked to hear voices more. Do you know what I mean? Oh, she's right. really interested in that. So I'm going to um, let in more voices, you know? So you don't right. want to do that, but you certainly do want to not just treat them as random things, you know? Uh, they tell you something about the person. Interesting. Very, mm -hmm. very interesting. Well, Dr. Lieberman or Dr. Carroll, uh, it certainly has been a joy having you on the show. Um, you've given us a lot to think about. Well, it's been a delight. Thank you. And uh, I know our listeners learned a lot and, and I appreciate what you were able to share with us as well. Um, Definitely. Um, uh, thank you and very appreciative and please stay safe. Thank you so much. You too. Well, I learned, you know, uh, how to better respond to hallucinations, I think, by, I wouldn't have thought to ask what Godzilla looked like or what Godzilla had to say or why Godzilla decided to come for this particular day. So uh, it will def definitely help me when I'm with my uh, support group and I appreciate that. Yeah, and also she said there's also a fine line where you could make it even more fearsome. So you kind of got to be careful walking that fine line. So that was very, very important too. Absolutely. Well, you can find uh, out more about Dr. Lieberman on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please, subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.